Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. We are very lucky today with with the guests we were able to secure. And something that I think is really cool about this guest is we've talked a lot about uh, on this program, you know, uh, issues of, of, of race, of power, of political and civic engagement and how those things are affected by race and power. And, and this guest just really does a great job of kind of bringing that all together, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that I really appreciate about this episode is that um, our guest really challenges us to think about how we understand civic and political engagement from the perspective of historically marginalized and minoritized communities, right? That that defining civic and political engagement, it can and is different, and that that histories matter and how we understand uh, civic and political worlds in that landscape. Um, and so it's really excited to have with us today, uh, Dr. Arkey. All right, with us today, we have Dr. Shamara Arkey. Um, they identify as an educator, an activist, and as an organizer, currently serving as an, an, instruct, an instructor and interim director of the Center for Pan-African Culture at Kent State University, and also as the founding program director at the Ellipsis Institute for Women of Color in the Academy. She's an intersectional feminist scholar with expert knowledge and skills to develop, implement, facilitate, and evaluate curricula that promote institutional equity, communication, and access for traditionally marginalized students and families. Shamara received her BBA and um, Master's of Education from the American Intercontinental University and her EDD, Educational Doctorate, um, from Northeastern University. Dr. Arkey's dissertation research centers on the voices of Northeast Ohio youth as they respond to hate, particularly in the wake of Black Lives Matter. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Arkey, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And and funny enough, you're at Kent State University. Obviously, both of us are. We've not met you. Although you're you're fairly new, you started during the pandemic, isn't that right? Well, I have been um, teaching part time in the department since 2018, so uh, I've been doing that. So you know, part time on campus is really part time. Even before the pandemic, some of the courses that I was teaching were uh, remote or virtual courses. Uh, so, but this semester is where I really just start on campus. <laughs> one day a week in the Center for Pan-African Culture. So it's really exciting to be able to connect with other folks on campus and then even like not on campus. So thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Even virtually, right? As as we all are doing now. (laughs) Yes. So I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to, to where you are now? Sure. So I'm from Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised. That's uh, where I still live today, even though I work in Kent. (laughs) 
So I'm a mom. I have two sons, uh, Solomon and Malcolm, and I love them a lot. And some of my favorite things to do is make memories with them. I also identify as a descendant of uh, the ones who survived and surviving the the transatlantic slave trade or the Mayafa as we know it. Um, and so that really shaped my identity personally, but then also professionally as an educator, an activist, and an organizer. Briefly after finishing undergrad, I lived in um, Atlanta and I was working in banking. <laughs> And it wasn't quite working out for me. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. Because I have a bachelor's in business administration. You know, somebody told me I was going to be an accountant. So I just went with it. And uh, shortly into that, I realized that, oh, we have to have a different path. So I became an AmeriCorps member and I joined City Year. Uh, which is a uh, international affiliate that does uh, leadership development and civic engagement for young people between the ages of 17 and 24. Um, so really being a member of the AmeriCorps um, opened my uh, professional worldview to so many different ways in which I can be involved in community, right? So working in community and education and giving back. So working there as a core member, as an AmeriCorps member, I also worked in New York City at the New York City site, helping to do some recruitment outreach and also manage some of the national events. After that, I came back to Cleveland and uh, began working for a local nonprofit where I ran programs on diversity, leadership, and service for about six years, primarily middle and high school students. And then as the time went on, we developed a, a ratio for the amount of time that we work with students. We had to create so much time to work with educators to make sure that the message was succinct. So we ran a program called ACT. It was called Action and Awareness for Change Teams, where we do six clock hours with smaller groups of students, classroom size, 20 or 30, and do at least 90 minutes of semester with teachers and professional development. Um, and so from there, I left to go to grad school to get my MED and begin consulting because that's kind of what happens <laughs> and really got into curriculum development and pedagogy work. And uh, I like to say that's where I found my sweet spot. Uh, so throughout uh, my grad school career, um, just building my consulting business and building um, the Ellipsis Institute for Women of Color in the Academy. And my research focuses on young people in the classroom, particularly Black women, girls, and femmes. And so after finishing my dissertation, I had a postdoc at Case, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, where I was the inaugural postdoctoral scholar for intersectional feminisms, taught some classes there, global feminism, pan-African feminism, and has since transitioned into my role at Kent. So really excited to be at Kent and it's an amalgamation of the research that I do but also the work that I've done in the community so also as a graduate student um, and even before that but as a graduate student in the wake of Black Lives Matter I spent a lot of time literally on the front line um, you know doing advocacy work here in Cleveland but then in other places but really enjoyed that time and began to uh, merge that activism with my research and to really begin to help prepare teachers um, as far as themselves, right, their pedagogy, but also their curriculum and then their environment, the classroom for the sociopolitical context that our students, all of us are living in. So I'm super excited that you're on the podcast. Um, I think <laughs> uh, no matter what you say from this point on, I've already, I'm already like 
bought into your uh, what, what you're talking about. So I have a really quick follow-up to that. For our listeners, can, can you define intersectional feminism? Sure. So intersectional feminism is, um, it's just kind of like, think about feminism. If we can do a really broad definition of feminism and say, it's, you know, like uh, Chimamanda told us, it's the equality of the sexes, uh, personally, physically, socially, economically, the equality of them. Um, really simple for feminism. When we add intersectionality to that, it forces us to wrestle with the places in which we are different. So while we all may have this same identity, this identity that unites us uh, based on our gender identity or expression, understanding that how we uh, show up in the world and how the world sees us, so not just how we see the world, but also how the world sees us, even in our gendered body, is again further delineated by our other identities. So particularly with Kimberly Crenshaw, she talks about race as she discovered and defining the concept with a, a case with a woman named Emma DeGrasse and Reed. But then we can also think about things like ability. We can think about sexual orientation. We can think about socioeconomics. And when we think about intersectionality, we have to look at all of those pieces because that's how we are in the world. That's how we inhabit it. And that's how the world sees us. And so even in our gender and our fight for gender justice, we have to understand the nuances in that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So my question for you is about uh, shooting without bullets. So you're on, uh, you're the board chair, co-chair. Is that correct? Yeah, co-chair. Excellent. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this organization? What is it? What are they doing? Sure. So I love shooting without bullets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to say that, shout out to the team, shout out to Amanda and Kelsey and Michelle, who's my other co-chair. Love these young people in the work that they are curating in community. So Shooting Without Bullets is a nonprofit creative agency and a production company. And what we do is we model an alternative arts ecosystem that really helps to advance the movement of Black and Latino youth and the communities that they live in and really advancing them from surviving to thriving. So through tools like cultural production, artist education and development, activism, advocacy, we incubate young artists. So these are teenagers. So some of them may be in high school. And then we've even um, expanded the program to continue to work with these young people after they've transitioned out of high school because we understand what this ecosystem is like. Um, and so we continue to work with them to help to eliminate these systemic barriers in art but then also in society. So that intersection comes into play there, thinking about being a young person, being a creative, uh, being someone who's in an urban environment because the program runs here in Northeast Ohio and really beginning to give them the tools to use their art as a, a means of liberation. And when they do that, and then it, it comes, it's, it's of course cultural production, but it becomes education uh, for everyone and not just their peers, but even the young people as they're engaging in the process, they're learning more about themselves and their community and their history. I, that's so fascinating to me. We actually uh, just recorded another episode with Dr. Lee Garcia, who's at Kent State University, who's Latinx and, and her art is also, she's seen as democratizing 
that that seems to me is such a powerful medium for folks to uh, express their experience, but also for others to actually uh, be able to engage with that. So I love that. Uh, Now, you're also the founder of Sankofa Circle and Ellipses Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these organizations and what it is that they're about? Sure. Um, I'll start with Sankofa. So Sankofa Circle International is a nonprofit that works with creative entrepreneurs to provide capacity building. Uh, So that's kind of our elevator pitch. The way that we define creative entrepreneurs are people who are working in the community who have the, the, the end goal of making their community better, helping to transform them, very much in the vein of shooting without bullets like we talked about. But these folks, and particularly in Northeast Ohio, within the arts community, there's this nonprofit industrial complex which creates barriers and creates gatekeepers to creatives getting the things that they need to continue to produce the culture, right? So thinking about that. So I really established the Encosa Circle as a go-between, as an agency to really begin to do the the back office, the capacity for creatives. Uh, So thinking about one thing is fiscal agency. So that's a really big thing for artists in the community. But then also we do uh, branding, communications plans. We can do strategic planning. So really using culturally relevant strategies to work with the artists and the creatives to make sure that they're getting the things that they need from the systems and institutions. Um, And so that's Sankofa. We have a couple of different programs that we run under there in the Ellipsis Institute for Women of Color in the Academy is one of those programs where we focus on um, women of color in the Academy and supporting us. Uh, You both work in the Academy. (laughs) So I'm sure you've heard stories about what it's like for women, even at um, Kent earlier this week, there's a Women of Color Caucus, Women of Color Collective, and we meet uh, bi-monthly during lunchtime just to begin to build that community and create the safe space that we need to to manage the minefields, right, of the And so with Ellipsis, we produce a two-day conference um, in the spring of every year where we bring folks together. And we also really want to focus on the community. So we'll have a campus co-chair and we'll have a community co-chair and thinking about what our role is as women of color in the academy to reach out into the community. So yeah, we're here and we're working this institution and we're working policies and procedures and we're teaching and we're learning and we're doing all of those things. But once when we do the work around our identities, our roles and our responsibility, we understand that we have a responsibility to take everything that we've experienced in the academy and take that and give it to our community and make sure that we're sharing that information with them um, to help us all be better on that road to liberation. Um, so that's really Sankofa Circle is the big umbrella. And then Ellipsis Institute is just one of the programs that we run there. Now, Dr. Arkey, I have a follow-up to this, and I recognize this is catching you off guard. Can you can you explain to, I mean, right, so Ashley and I are both white women, and we both identify as feminists, but you know, obviously we both identify as, as, as anti-racist and, and, and allies and hoping to be allies, but I'm sure there are others out there that perhaps, and maybe we don't understand the full extent, why is it necessary to have a, have a safe space like this for women of color in the academy to actually gather and to talk together as a community about issues that they face and also how to how to respond in a meaningful way uh, that, that also does impact at the end of the day their students experience 
Yeah, I think that it's important for us to have the space to unpack these issues um, as we talk about the history of education. Um, we can talk about K-12, we can talk about public, we can talk about higher ed. It's all kind of rooted in that same space. And if we be really honest, it's not just women of color that weren't welcome. It's all women that weren't welcome in American education that's free and compulsory at all. And so I think that as a part of our work, we have to really understand the historical implications of the places that we are in now. And if we begin to understand that and if we're honest about it, then we can really begin to transform these institutions to make sure that the people who are here today, independent of how we identify, are able to get the things that we need and be successful. Um, so we, we know the history of education. And so we have things like um, women's centers and we have LGBT centers and we have cultural centers. And these are attempts at equity because the original system that we're operating from didn't include these groups. Like no one's going to say that on campus, <laughs> but that's why these things are here. Like, <laughs> so we can say that out loud. I think that that'll take us down a little bit like, oh, they knew that too. Yes, we all know that. And so really looking and then so looking at these attempts at equity and see um, just even within the last 20 years, the, the gains that we've made moving from a diversity framework to a diversity and inclusion framework to a diversity, equity and inclusion framework. And now in my work that I do with teachers and professional development, we talk about, we call it a DEII. So it's diversity, equity, inclusion and intersectionality. That's one of my favorite words that's going to come up the whole time we're talking today. <laughs> so really thinking about our institutions and the history of them, and then not just um, putting the onus on the folks who are falling through the cracks, because that's another function of our institutions. We say, okay, well, the institution has been here 450 years, and we've got this many people who've come through, so it must be you. Or it must be the people who identify like this or who come from this way. And so, so okay, we, we can work on us. We can do that. But in addition to and in conjunction with us as individuals working on us, the institution has a responsibility to work on itself also and to make sure that it's keeping up with the signs of the times, with the days. Uh, institutions have a responsibility to do that, particularly those of teaching and learning and higher education. I couldn't agree more. So I appreciate you saying it. I, really, I, just, I have a really bad habit where we're on the podcast where I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> and then I like lose my words. I'm like, just, I agree with you. Oh, I'm supposed to be talking. Okay. So like, I do have a question for you though. I really, really do. So you're an educator, you're an activist, you're an organizer. I mean, so many parts of what we do on the in the Growing Democracy Project and in the podcast is kind of bring these pieces together. Can you tell us about how you would define political and civic engagement? And as someone trying to increase access for traditionally marginalized students and families, can you describe how civic engagement can help achieve that goal? I mean, I guess that's two questions, but. Yeah, those are two questions. So I think I want to <laughs> start with the top one. And so as I was thinking and preparing for our time together today, it and thinking about political and civic engagement, just that kind of phrasing, it made me really think about two Black women scholars who I really look to uh, to inspire me and my work to continue. 
So thinking about the word political, it makes me think about Dr. Yavablé, who's um, a cultural uh, curator. She has lots of different projects going out and particularly dealing with Black women and girls um, and colorism. And so she talks about the interrogation of power and um, she uses the word political to do that. And so really thinking about and not just like the political system. So many people want to think about the three branches of government when we say politics or something political, but really opening that definition up and talking about the power, the, the balance or the imbalance of power, and then connecting that to civics. And uh, the other the other scholar that I want to mention is Dr. Bettina Love out of uh, the University of Georgia. And she's the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive. And she talks about civics and she talks about it through a hip hop lens, but she she situates the conversation in a place of us talking about citizenship. And when we think about citizenship, when I think about citizenship for me and people who look like me and my ancestors, I've got to understand that we didn't really like for real, for real, become full citizens of the United States until the second voting rights act in 65, not even the first, (laughs) the second one. So what's that? 55, 56 years that we're talking about this establishment that we've been here for 400 years and there's so much regalia. But when we want to talk about civics, and I think that's part of the conversation when we say political and civic engagement, why in the Black community specifically, it falls on deaf ears. Because we don't see ourselves as a part of this civic conversation, right? Because legally, we haven't been up until the last few years. So I think it's really important that we start with that and realize that, um, you know, language is the key transmitter to dialogue, like Gallagher tells us. And that the words that we use mean so, so much. So just entering into this conversation, I wanted to just kind of bring up those two pieces because that's where I'm coming from in the conversation. So it shifts the direction that we're going to go in a little bit. But I think also by, you know, paying attention to the historical context and also the sociopolitical context, it constrains institutions to do the same work, right? So as we're talking about power, power dynamics, civics, who's a citizen, how folks can be involved to make change, we have to begin to constrain institutions to do the same work. And I think that after the uprising this summer, more institutions are tuned in and more institutions are attempting to do this work. And then there are still some that are not. But I think that we have to give the credit to those people who are trying and who are attempting and even know, and whether the outcome is positive or um, not so positive, you know, maybe I have to go back to the drawing board a few times. I think that the decision to do the work, the decision to tell the historical truth, the decision to say, we've got to do something different. That's a major, major, major first step. And so really thinking about if we want to be inclusive, institutions want to be inclusive the way that they say they do, if we really want to be in an education system that's free and compulsory to all, then what are some of the things that we must deal with in our past that's really going to get that honest conversation, that dialogue to a point where we can begin to build together and move forward? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Arkey, as as you're talking, just so many things come 
up for me. And and maybe because, right, your focus on curriculum and education. And and again, I recognize I'm asking you a follow-up question that maybe you aren't prepared for. So so I understand if you if you don't if you want to take a pass on this, but it, it makes me think of how civic engagement and how we think of you know, politics and, and the work that needs to be done could change if our understanding of history was different, which of course leads me to think about the 1619 project. And and if if our if all of us, not just so I feel like that uh, that black communities in America probably have a better understanding of history than white communities in America uh, because because a lot of white communities see uh, slavery is not a problem, it's just a blip as a thing that happened, as opposed to that, that there, it really was a, 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 a shaping part of not only our history in our country, but of a, a large swath of the community. And I, I just am curious, how do you think if our, if our understanding of history was different, would that change how we civically engage with one another and, and maybe the political choices that we're interested in engaging with? Oh, yeah. I think if we really knew what was going on. If the masses of people who we are pushing through our education system were told the truth about the founding of our country, we have a very different outcome. I think when we can we can talk about the 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 power situation. You know, the people who are in control are the ones who write the narrative, who write the textbooks, who who are writing the curriculum, who are teaching the curriculum. And so, and like you said that. Um, I can't remember exactly the words that you said, Casey, but it was around um, like black people and white people have kind of like this different experience. And I think that we all have to begin to use our lived experience. We have to begin to use that. And that's a key tenet of black feminist thought is really using our lived experience as an indicator, as research. We go through the academy and we're taught that we're supposed to be apart from this research. They're the subjects. But then Brian Stevenson told us that it's all about proximity. <laughs> How can we research them over there from over here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Brene Brown told us that too, right? With her little animation around uh, shame and the little bear going down into the hole, right? So, and we're seeing the same message come out in various different ways. But, you know, our society being in that dominant position has to be what has to shift. Um, and so in education in particular, thinking about um, history is one way that can shift. Thinking about pedagogy is another way that can shift. Thinking about the environment, classrooms is another way that that can shift. So really, I think it's about understanding that we all have a, a lived experience. We all have um, oral histories that are passed down to us, right? So beginning to interrogate those. Uh, Cornel West said we have to interrogate our hidden assumptions. And so that's for all of us. We often talk about doing that work as uh, Black people. You know, we do our identity work. We do our history. We find out who we are. But people who are not Black, they need to do that work, too. White people got to do that work, too. Y'all got ancestors, too. <laughs> we all have ancestors. Like, we're human beings, so everyone has ancestors, right? And so I'm not saying that, you know, you got to call on your ancestors. But I think it's important to know who they were. It's important to know, you know, what they did. So even not just um, saying that we have ancestors who, you know, you know, when I say this, you got a lot of white people say, I don't want to know the slave owners. No, if you do some digging, I bet you, you're going to find somebody who was on the other side. 
I put any of my money on it. (laughs) Because just thinking about the last 400 years and the things that happened and the ways in which people had to communicate, there was no internet. There was no Facebook. (laughs) I can't text you the location and the meetup spot. Like, I can't do that. (laughs) So there had to be relationships and there had to be trust. And so if we dig into our past, if we're opening ourselves up to do that work, I think that we'll find it. And I think that, you know, so as Black people, we want to connect with our ancestors who, you know, those who were here, who were brought here, who were also descendants, but those who were not, right? And so I think that that's important for white people too, is to understand that lineage. And so just like there are people in our in our families and our lineage that we want to model ourselves after, people that we don't want to model ourselves after, but knowing and then the power is in the choice because you're not making a choice if you don't know. I, I love that. That's so powerful. Uh, Ashley's typing a message on it. Genealogy is feminist research praxis. Yes, 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 yes. It's, it's archival. We are archivists. We are what we collect for yeah. sure. I love that. So now uh, you are one of five editors for the forthcoming textbook, Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls. I love that title, by the way. Uh, And this is curated to position classrooms as places of radical transformation and to amplify voices of Black girls who inhabit them, right? So can you tell us how classrooms can help amplify the voices of Black girls in particular? Yeah, So I think it kind of starts with some of the things that we've talked about, right? So this historical process, um, you know, schools have to to tell the truth about what's really going on, but then, and not just tell it, but then react to it. How can we change? Uh, And so we can look at um, Black scholars in the early uh, 20th century, like W.E.B. Du Bois. We can look at other scholars like Carter G. Woodson, who really want to focus on education. And they're saying that it's not about this separate versus equal. It's not about the segregated schools or the mixed schools. It's about the education that the young person is receiving. So being able to focus in on that is number one, I think. And then from there, I think it goes into the pedagogy of the teacher. And so that's another output of my dissertation research is working on this hashtag Black comma feminist pedagogy. So really um, understanding the three questions of identity development. How do I see myself? How do I see the world? And how does the world see me? And so in in the book, Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls, um, I have a chapter in there that talks about student as sign maker. So really being able to position our students, the things that they say, the things that they do, and also the things that they don't say and the things that they don't do and being able to position all of those as signs. So to look to our students to lead us in how to respond to what's going on and how to set up our coursework. Um, we look to our the places that we've been taught. We look to educational theorists and scholars and books and professional development. Well, why not look to the people that really have to? You know, they, they have a voice, they have a lived experience that they're willing to share. And I think those of us as teachers, as researchers, as activists, we have a responsibility to make that a lived experience. So using that lived experience as empirical evidence to really begin to change how we show up, 
So once we think about the system, the institution of education, we work on ourselves a little bit. Um, that's the pedagogy. And then the other side of that is the curriculum. And so um, also in the book, we have a couple of, we have lots of chapters. <laughs> we have lots of chapters. <laughs> but there's one chapter in particular that talks about a concept called psychological verve. And it's by Dr. Dollar Scott, who is a professor at Bowie State, which is an HBCU. Um, but she talks about these nine dimensions of African-American culture that find their roots in West Africa and have showed how these nine dimensions could impact Black student achievement. Um, and so these nine uh, traits are affect, communalism, harmony, individual expressionism, movement, oral tradition, social time perspective, spirituality, and of course, verve. And verve is the one that really stands out when we think, uh, when we listen to the, the narrative around urban schools, inner city schools, schools where the majority of the students are Black and Latinx, um, thinking about verve as being the spirit or the enthusiasm, that animating artistic piece, you know, how young people show up in the room, they just got so much energy. <laughs> So really thinking about that and then centering that experience. So understanding that these young people are not these empty vessels that are just showing up in the classroom ready to be poured into, seeing them as human beings, seeing them as having a lived experience, as having a perspective, as having a worldview. Yes, it might be different than mine. And I might think it's in conflict or even in opposition, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's theirs. It's their lived experience based on where they are and who they are and who they've been exposed to. So really thinking about a curricula in a way that centers the student as opposed to centering um, educational theory, schools of thought, or even centering the teacher on what's most comfortable for them. So when I think about creating classrooms as spaces of radical transformation for young people, particularly for Black girls, it, it has to have all of these things. So it has to have this truth and reconciliation, like that's that historical piece. It has to be staffed by a caring adult, a teacher, an educator who's doing their own work. So independent of how that person identifies, they could be Black, they could be non-Black. They have to be engaged in their own identity development process, but then also thinking about the curricula and saying, how can we make sure that the curricula reflects the experiences of our students? So I think those are kind of three ways that um, all of the book really focuses on how we can create these spaces of teaching and learning that are dynamic and that can really be transformational. So Dr. Erke, you spent part of 2019 in Ghana conducting research on gender and sexuality. Can you tell us a little bit about your time there? what you learned, the experiences that you had? Sure. So I had an amazing time. <laughs> I had an opportunity to stay um, in, a, in a village, in a couple of villages, actually. Uh, the first village that I spent time in was the village of Atankwa, which is very close to um, Cape Coast, which is the area which uh, gets lots of tourism and lots of visitors. Um, and it has the uh, slave dungeons there and the famous door of no return that we learned about a lot during the year of return. So I stayed in a village there and got an opportunity to meet with uh, uh, the families, the children, visit the schools, but then also spend some time with the chiefs and uh, the folks that work uh, really closely with the chiefs. 
and also few of the queen mothers in the village. And so really thinking about just kind of thinking about civic engagement and, and, and the village structure, which makes it very different from a traditional governmental structure. And that was really important. Uh, we went with a study abroad program and the majority of the students in the program identified as female. And as we were meeting the, the chief and the folks who work with the chief and all of them were men and the majority of us were not. <laughs> And so the students looked at me and said, where are the women at? And so that was a part of our uh, action research. You know, I kind of coached them into, you know, when you see a woman, what's she doing? You know, write it down. And then we actually did have some time where we went into um, specific places where women work, um, as seamstresses, in education. Um, And then we had an opportunity to learn about this role of queen mother. And the role of queen mother uh, in a village and even in uh, a, a city, like even an African, you know, urban environment is really important because she is the one who is there to speak on behalf of the young people and also uh, the women who are in the village. And so it, it sounds very much like the role of an educator here, <laughs> the role of uh, an organizer here. You know, we think about just the history of organizing. We know that the women are behind the scenes doing the work. Right. That's that's a function of the society that we're in. Um, and so understanding that even though societies that are like, you know, in the village, it's a very indigenous society. But situating the mother as the queen, even though that the, the function is still doing the same. So the women here are doing what the women there do. But how they're situated in society makes it very different. Um, naming them a queen mother and giving them the autonomy really to go and do the work without necessarily the the oversight that we have here around government and community and things like that. They just kind of come to the table, report in, and they go back and do what they want to do. And that really um, inspired me to see it. The way that we saw it was very different than we see it in the States. And so, you know, in those first couple of days, that's why the students were like, well, we're all the women, we're all the women. And so after really understanding that process, I was invited to come back to be installed as a queen mother in a different village. So in a village in the OT region, um, which is a little up north in the mountains. And so really being an honor to do that, it was really amazing. And working with the folks in that village to build Ellipsis International. So really uh, working with young girls there, Black girls, women and femmes around education and sustainability. I mean, that's so fascinating because formalizing that role is really formalizing that power, uh, which uh, uh, our teachers here definitely do not have. <laughs> not in that capacity, anyway. I'm, fa- I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, so now I have uh, a, a slightly different question. The homepage of your website is entitled Black, Feminist. Uh, can you discuss the marginalization of African-American women in the feminist movement within the U.S. and how the movement can become more inclusive uh, for all women? Okay. So, you know, just FYI, also in teaching beautiful and brilliant Black girls, there's a a chapter called Who Are Black Girls? An Intersectional History of Feminism. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, not just not just about the book, but the work that goes into it, but how, you know, we we have these conversations often and this becomes a text where we can reference a lot of these conversations. So when we think about feminism, 
um, or just thinking about, yeah, the feminist movement in the United States. We defined feminism earlier as um, just thinking about the equality, right, and all these other systems and intersections, thinking about the equality of the sexes. I think it is important to understand that the word feminism was coined much later than the action of feminism. And so that, again, takes us back to our historical context. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a history buff, a little bit. But I, we have to go back to our origins, really, to understand the, uh, the implications of them now. So understanding that, you know, if feminism is this equality, you know, we can see it as that basic equality, then where do we see that at? Where do we see this um, person who is female identified, who serves as um, a, a nurturer, who serves as a sometime in the role of a mother, someone who serves as a teacher, someone who's a caretaker? Um, we see that in the American slavery system. We see someone who's going to put their own, put them, put their, their, their work before what's happening at home. Like slave women, women who were born as slaves, they didn't have an, a choice. They had to go and take care of someone else's home before they took care of theirs. But now we have choices and often we do the same thing. And that's considered a feminist act, right? So giving of yourself, helping, supporting, particularly other women other families. And so when we think about that act of feminism, we have to understand that um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, honey, they had to learn it from somewhere. <laughs> they had to learn it from somewhere. And so they learned it from that act that they saw, that support, that nurturing, that caretaking. Black women served as wet nurses to white babies and fed those white babies all day and then still had to come home and feed their own babies, right? So really thinking about the history of feminism and separating when the word was introduced to the canon versus when the action and when the duty was introduced. And so we already talked about, you know, the person who's in power is the one who's going to control the narrative and control the language and control the words. So with the Black comma feminist, the Black is there particularly to delineate, to say that, yes, I do identify as a feminist, but it's a, it's a subversive point to say that you, these were Black women who were producing these feminist acts. Like we can go back to 1831 with Maria Miller Stewart, who was the first woman, so therefore she had to be the first Black woman to speak to a mixed race crowd. 1831, that was 20 years before Sojourner Truth, ain't I a woman? So she's talking to them. And what is she talking about? She says, oh, ye daughters of Africa, awake, arise, no longer sleep nor slumber, but distinguish yourselves. What have you done to immortalize your name beyond the grave? Right. So she's coming out blazing. <laughs> if that's not feminist, I don't know what is. <laughs> I don't know what is. So really thinking about you know, the, the, the act of feminism, what does it really look like, sound like, and feel like? We've been socialized to believe that it's, you know, that it's connected to the suffrage movement and right to vote, that that's where it started. But it started before that. And even that's kind of like first wave, and then you get to second wave, and it's all men-hating and bra-burning. And that's what the media wants us to think, again, because it's not telling us the true history of what's really going on. So we can look at women 
um, particularly Black women, and connect their story um, to feminist iteration. So even though they may not have identified as a feminist, right, they were doing these feminist things. We can think about people like Margaret Garner, who was uh, born into uh, a slave plantation in Kentucky, and her master raped her, and she was pregnant, and this wasn't the first time. Do you know Margaret Garner beheaded her baby because she didn't want her baby to continue to be a slave? If that's not reproductive justice, I don't know what is. (laughs) I don't know what it is, right? If that's not feminism inherently because I want to be able to control the narrative for my children, you know, so we really have to understand, you know, the, not just the words, the connotation, right? Not just the denotation, but also the connotation behind this. And so I think that as we move forward with uh, the feminist movement and understanding that, you know, we can put these identifiers or these qualifiers before it. So Black or Pan-African or intersectional or Chicana or, you know, whatever it is, understanding that the root of that work boils down to these actions and even when we begin to delineate and look at feminism through the lens of other cultures like other cultures other minoritized populations we can see the same thing we see these acts we see these iterations and now we can look back and label it feminist but when it was happening the word feminist wasn't around so it wasn't called that now, I mean, Dr. Arke, it, it occurs to me that, especially during you know, the suffrage movement here in the U.S., the, the feminist movement largely didn't listen to the voices of Black women uh, and, and, and in many cases <laughs> pushed them out, right? And it didn't, didn't even support them in their efforts for, for civil rights. And, I, and I'm curious, I, I'm not clear that the current wave of feminist movement is is significantly better. Can you think of places in which the voices and concerns of uh, women of color are actually placed at the front and center of feminist work? Mm. That's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So your first point you talked about thinking about the suffrage movement. And so, yes, Black women were intentionally left out of that, but it goes back to, you know, if you have a group of people who are fighting for rights, the Constitution already says that this is who these people are. So the group of people that the women of the suffrage movement is trying to get their rights from doesn't even think about Black women as people. (laughs) (laughs) let alone citizens who can get the right to vote. So, you know, I take issue with those women who are under this feminist banner who that didn't occur to them. (laughs) (laughs) That that was a total blind spot. Um, And so that act in itself, I would say, is not feminism ideally. Um, but I will say the 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 22 women of Douglas Sigmatheta sorority that walked behind them in the parade, that's an act of feminism. Even though you're marching for something that doesn't include me. And so thinking about what that looks like today is I was listening to a talk uh, by Salamisha Tillett, who just, her book just came out. It's In Search of the Color Purple. 
So it's an amalgamation of In Search of Our Mother's Gardens and The Color Purple, both by Alice Walker. And Alice Walker, and this is something that I actually learned through that talk, that she's connected to the feminist movement because Gloria Steinem was one of the first people that gave her an opportunity to be published in this magazine, so this national platform. And so, you know, the Alice Walker story, right? So she takes the concept of feminism and she, you know, says that uh, womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. Um, So really thinking about what her interactions with Gloria Steinem and the staff of Miss Magazine and what what that experience was like in writing about, you know, a, a feminist politic in those date and times. I think that that's one way, right? That that's one way that we can see how a white woman has used her privilege in that situation to open it up for, you know, a person who's not white, who wants to continue to do this work. And so I think that we have to continue to see that. I think another example of that is where Alyssa Milano, you know, the the Me Too, the hashtag Me Too story, where we know that this was founded by Tarana Burke, who's a Black woman. And um, Alyssa Milano came out and, you know, she tweeted it, uh, but she had to go back and recant, right? And so I think, so that so that is something that we, we're taught that we shouldn't be doing. Um, based on ego, based on privilege, based on the good old fashioned American way, we're socialized into we can't make mistakes, we can't go back and retract our statements, we can't apologize, we have to be right, 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 right. But I think it was really important that um, the work that she did to to re- not necessarily recant her statement, but tell the truth that she wasn't really the founder and she's just you know walking in the vein of someone who's a part of this movement and also sharing that platform with Tarana Burke. And so not just saying that and then being quiet, but inviting her into the space and really making sure that the people who are really pushing this message more than celebrities, the media, so making sure that they understand who is really behind that. So I think that those are a few examples of how we can really begin to be more inclusive of all women. But I think that we have a ways to go. I think we got a ways to go. And I think it's just about being honest and even this concept of gender, you know, so often we're stuck into this binary of male or women. And even with ellipses, we've got really intentional around using X as we write women, you know, and putting that on our website and making sure that people understand that this is an intentional subversion to the culture. We're here to make space for, you know, Marsha P. Johnson. (laughs) None of us would be here without her. We wouldn't have some of the rights that we have now. And so understanding that and paying homage to that too. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back a little bit to, to a comment you made a little bit earlier. So maybe you're foreshadowing um, this conversation. But my question is about engaged citizenship. In our conversations, we use the terminology of citizenship very broadly and not in the legal definition of citizenship. Um, but it comes with baggage, right? And so we've been playing around with the idea of maybe we call populists. But from your perspective, what does an engaged citizenry or an engaged populace look like? And how might we go about securing deep, rich, radical engagement from as many places as we can? So I think what that looks like is this diverse group. And I mean, 
diverse in every sense of the word. People coming together across lines of difference in pursuit of a common goal. And that common goal has to be the liberation of the most marginalized. So thinking about, you know, those folks who are on the margins of our society, who are in the margins of our institutions, really beginning to center their experience and using that as empirical evidence as to why systems and institutions need to change. I believe that we have to, um, I read a lot of books. Y'all are professors, y'all know that too. So Alicia Garza's book is out, The Purpose of Power. And she talks just about organizing and she talks about um, popular fronts and night fronts. And I think that um, that was so illuminating to me uh, just thinking about a united front is a group of people that you're going to be aligned with the most deep down into your core. Um, not just your end game is the same. It's like, okay, your end game is liberation. Come on, we can do it. But your united front, that's going to be your core group of people, your core organization that um, you'll probably share many intersections with um, many of the same schools of thought. And yes, we need those groups and those institutions to organize. In addition, we need popular friends. We need people who we may differ. You know, they may differ in race or ethnicity, in sexual orientation, in where they live, right? How much education they have. We need to unite with those people too. Those people who we think are so, so, so far from us because the same system that oppresses them is oppressing us. And so I honestly believe that together is the only way that we will win. And we, we're hearing this narrative creep up more and more. You know, we are in the, the sweet spot between King Day and Black History Month and then Women's History Month is coming after that. And so we've seen even this MLK Day. <laughs> if you have a social media account, I'm sure you've seen the, the memes of people saying, if you weren't talking uh, in the summer, then you can't post an MLK Day quote. So there's this more radical interpretation um, that's coming out of Dr. King. But, we, but it's always been there, right? So now it's coming to the mainstream around how we have to organize across lines of difference. We have to. We have to. And when we look at that historically, when people come out and they say that, and that is their primary message, that shifts the movements that they're a part of. We saw with Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement. We saw with Malcolm X in the Black Power Movement. So we've got to understand that that has to be a key indicator to us getting free is working together. I, I love that so much. I think I want that tattooed on me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Dr. Ari, it has been fantastic having you on, honestly. I've been, don't tell our other guests, but I think this should be my favorite. <laughs> uh, is, <Thank> you. <laughs> is, there any, <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to add? Any takeaways for our listeners uh, that, that they can just kind of have resonate for them uh, from following this podcast? I guess I just want to tell people to keep going, keep going, you know, wherever it is that you're reading, that you're listening to, that you're engaged with, keep going, Uh, keep asking the questions, keep doing the work. Uh, It is a journey, not a destination. And even independent of how we may identify, how we may be the same and how we may be different, it is a journey that we are all on. We all have to do our own work around our identity development to understand how we see ourselves, 
how we see the world. And most importantly, nothing that we can't, we can't do anything about it, but we have to understand how the world sees us. If we want to be able to get in the world and get the things that we need, we have to understand those stereotypes and those tropes that are about the groups that we identify with and make a decision of how we're going to show up and either defy those stereotypes and tropes or confirm. We have a decision to make on that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, Dr. Arkey, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host, as always, is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Jursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.